Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. We'll read verses 34 through 40. And then I'll be going over to Mark chapter 12. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Turn over to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he was, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ongoing ministry of every local church all over the world. Thank you that your gospel is being proclaimed this day and every day of the week by those who have been transformed by your love. Lord, we pray that today that those who have experienced Your love would be filled with it afresh. And those who have not, that You might grant them eyes to see, hearts to believe, that they might see and experience the love of Christ and be saved today. We pray in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, of all the themes behind poetry and all the reasons behind songs, all the plots behind dramas, all the ideas behind stories that have ever stood, there is nothing like the quality, the virtue, the emotion, and the experience of love. Our world has much to say about love. Virtually every story written seems to say something about it. But sadly, this world's understanding of love is a poor substitute For the love of God, love defined by God, love proclaimed by Him, love commanded by Him, and most notably, love given by Him. The passage before us this morning is not only memorable, but it has had a huge impact the world over. 
In fact, we're so familiar with Jesus' words here that we might fall victim to neglecting them due to just a surface familiarity. It's akin to someone answering the question regarding what is man's purpose for living? What's our purpose for existing? And someone rattling off an answer to glorify God and to enjoy Him from forever, as the Westminster Confession would put it. And meanwhile, while being able to give that answer in an orthodox way, never really thinking about that in daily life. We similarly can answer, what is the prime motivation driving God-honoring obedience? And I'm sure if I ask that question, the great majority of you, if not all of you, would say, love. Love is what motivates God-honoring obedience. And yet, while we can answer that correctly and in an orthodox fashion, simultaneously we can find love to be absent as the driving force behind our service to God. Passages like these, I think, require, in a sense, almost all the more of our attention because our familiarity with them sometimes causes us to just start checking out already. Oh, I know this text. (laughs) Oh, I've heard Jesus say the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's very easy for us to start to just kind of step away from it. And so I want to really challenge you today to step into it, to step up to this, and to consider and allow the Word of God to break our hearts and to consider our own lives in relationship to this truth As always, the surrounding context is important. It's not with pure motives that a question regarding the greatest commandment comes to Jesus. And I think even in that moment, we find how incredible it is that God can work even through the sinful intentions of men to bring to pass His wonderful purposes. Jesus' opponents here come with ill intent. But as a result of the question that they bring, Jesus is afforded an opportunity to summarize the law and prophets in two elegant commands. What Jesus says, and we're so familiar with, we may, though, in the midst of that, miss just how revolutionary these words were. We have to place ourselves there and use our imagination as we consider the story. Now, it's not without precedent for someone to state a summarizing principle for the law. The Jewish rabbis were intent on trying to do this. We'll talk some more about it in a minute. But one most notable is the Rabbi Hillel, who 30 years prior to Jesus' ministry here, around the time when Jesus was born, had made the following statement to summarize the law. He said this, What you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Now, notice that the summary from the outset is negative in force. What you hate, don't do that to someone else. But you see, doing the good from love is what is at the heart of God's command. Not just the ceasing from doing evil. And what's truly precedent-setting in Jesus' response is the way in which he brings two very well-known commands together. He connects two incredibly well-known texts and forever impacts the way that his disciples would relate to the law. And we see it in the way in which they write about the law in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus has already responded to three attacks by the time we get to this fourth one. One by one, each of the main established religious groups have come up to bat with a devilish question intended to trip Jesus up. 
even though each group might have dis- disagreed on even the matters that are being questioned on, they're putting aside all of their differences in hopes of destroying one that they had all had a vested interest in trying to discredit. The Sanhedrin had already failed in their attempt to place doubt into Jesus' authority. The Pharisees and Herodians had failed in their attempt to get Jesus embroiled in a political battle. And last week we saw how the Sadducees similarly failed to discredit Jesus on the topic of the resurrection. Their whole hypothetical situation, which was meant to present untold numbers of difficulties for belief in the resurrection, is shown to be built upon faulty premises that Jesus exposes and demolishes. They, rather than Jesus, are the ones that should be removed from leadership and commanded to stop teaching. This interaction ends with the Sadducees acquiescing to failure. They admit their failure. They don't say it out loud, but we see it from their actions. They walk away and we're told that they bring him no further questions. Sadducees are done questioning Jesus. But the Pharisees are not. (laughs) They've already had an attempt. And they've had actually many more dialogues that we see throughout the Gospels with Jesus. And they're still not done yet. They just watch Jesus deal beautifully with the Sadducees' question. And I'm sure in this moment they're a little bit conflicted because part of them was probably excited about Jesus' response because as you remember with me, the Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed on the resurrection. It was the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees did. And so Jesus, who upheld the reality of the resurrection, certainly there must have been at least a fleeting moment of joy watching the Sadducees fail in their attempt to show the resurrection to be um, absurd. But, even though they would agree with Jesus on this one particular doctrine, it wouldn't cause them to change their perspective towards Him at all. And I'm sure they didn't like the fact that His popularity was growing with the crowds. And Jesus now has put forward an argument which the Pharisees in all of their days certainly had never put forward. (laughs) So maybe on another level they feel kind of, man, why didn't we ever think of that one? Why did we never have that verse to go to? Why didn't we ever go to the, the story about the bush with Moses, right? They still want Jesus eliminated. So they convene a quick council to consider what their next move is going to be. The, the phrase specifically is, they gathered themselves together. And that construction is interesting because the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint, the LXX, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when you get to Psalm 2.2, it has a very distinctive echo to what we read in Psalm 2.2. Psalm 2.2 describes the fact that there would be these non-Jewish rulers and people of the nations that would come together to oppose the Lord and His anointed. There would be people from outside of Israel that would oppose the Lord and His anointed. Anointed there is the word for Christ, right? Oppose the Lord and His Christ. Well, there's an unwitting fulfillment of prophecy in here. And we see that it's even picked up in the book of Acts. Acts 4.26-28 points out, not only foreign rulers and peoples, but the Jews as well plotted together against the Lord and His Christ. But all of these plots, even when appearing to be successful for the moment, would ultimately be frustrated, as the rest of Psalm 2 goes on to describe, because the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. <laughs> then devise a plot, and the Lord sees it all. 
You know, it's like as if you were going to battle and your enemy was sitting in the conference room while you were discussing your battle strategy, right? I mean, it's like, what are we even trying here? I mean, the Lord sits in the heavens. He sees it all. He laughs. And he goes on to say, for he has installed his king on his holy mountain. There's no one that's going to thwart God's plan to install his king upon his holy mountain. Well, nonetheless, here we see the Pharisees engaged in a futile act, and they decide to make another go of it. They return to Jesus with another question. Jesus just answered the Sadducees with an appeal to the law. He, he appealed to Exodus in particular. And so maybe this is what spurred the idea. Okay, he just dealt with the Sadducees from the law. How about, you know, we've heard a, you know, a question regarding authority. We've heard a question regarding politics. We've had a question regarding theology. How about we bring a question of legality? Let's bring a question regarding the law. Let's see how he handles it. They elect one among their number who's described here as a lawyer. A scribe. A lawyer. Now, as a lawyer, he was an expert, an expounder, a practitioner of the law. And being the fact that Jesus is such a formidable foe to the Pharisees, you can that that this isn't some, you know, paralegal, you know, somebody who's just going up through the ranks. I mean, this guy is probably at the top of their list. This guy knows the law backward and forward. Scribes already kind of prided themselves in this, but the fact that he's described here as a lawyer, the, the word in Greek is namakos, it comes from namas, the word law. So here's one skilled in the law, and he's going to be the representative from the Pharisees to bring this question of legality to Jesus. Now, this lawyer saw how well Jesus had dealt with the Sadducees' question and Jesus' obvious familiarity with the law. So what's a lawyer to do but to ask Jesus the ultimate question when it comes to law? <laughs> what is the greatest law? All right? I mean, that's, what he, that's got to be just in his mind. And it was something that was discussed often. He's asking, what's the preeminent commandment? By the way, the tenor of the exchange that happens between Jesus and this lawyer is interesting. It seems that the lawyer is at least a little conflicted. He seems to be more sensitive. You read it in Mark's account. He seems to be more sensitive to Jesus' responses and even willing to admit the beauty of Jesus' responses, unlike his companions. Well, simultaneously, he seems to not mind being used by his companions to test or trap Jesus. So there's some sort of strange dichotomy going on here inside of him. It's obvious, no matter what his varied motivations, he is genuinely curious about how Jesus is going to handle this question. And as we see from his response, he's ready to receive a good answer should Jesus give one. What comes out of this hostile situation? What does Jesus say all the law can be summed up in? How does Jesus respond to the hate of these leaders? Humanly speaking, it is quite opposite of what we would expect. But then, that's just like the Lord, isn't it? To do something we wouldn't expect. Jesus' response can be summed up in a single word, and it is the title for my sermon, and hopefully you've seen the theme through the service. Love. He responds to their hatred with, quite literally, love. We're going to consider the command to love, the expression of love, and the beauty of love together this morning. 
The command to love, the expression of love, and the beauty of love. Let's first of all consider the command to love. The command to love starts with God. Understand that the Pharisees had broken the law into some 613 laws. By the way, that precision, that exact number was on purpose. It is the same number of letters that's found in the numbers rendition of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. There are exactly 613 characters, 613 letters, in the Ten Commandments in the book of Numbers. And so, they found 613 laws by which the Israelites were to affirm. 248 of those were affirmative commandments, positive ones, and some rabbis put forward that that was symbolic of every part of the human body. I don't know how they split it up into 248 parts, but there you go. And there were 365 prohibitions uh, equating to the number of days in the year. So here we go, 365, 248 together make 613 laws. Some of these commandments were labeled as light, as not as heavy, other ones being heavy. But regardless, they all remained in force. All of God's law was treated seriously by the Pharisees, the scribes. But obviously, some of the commandments were seen to be more important than others. For example, the command to not commit adultery was more weighty than the commands regarding the management of slaves or the management of livestock. Right? Those are all commands given by God, but they would argue, and I think rightly so, that the command to... Um, not commit adultery, was a more heavy law than the one governing what I should do if my oxen escapes my yard and eats the neighbor's flowers. Um, How do I go about doing that? Now, it isn't to say that that law wasn't important or not from God, but they were engaged in an ongoing controversy as to which laws were most prominent, which ones were the most heavy, and which ones were lighter. Oftentimes, the relative weightiness was based upon the nature of the command or and you you see you'll do the same thing with me, or the consequence that would follow should you break it. right? So if the consequence for breaking the law meant death, then that was a heavy, weighty law. If instead it was recompense in some form or fashion, giving them money or giving them an oxen or something of that nature, um, then that would be a lesser law as it was described. But when you're talking about 613 separate commandments, you can understand the desire to have some sort of convenient summary for the law, right? Because you'd be able to recall to mind 613 commandments at any given time and apply them perfectly. You understand the desire to have a summary statement, a single principle from which everything else is derived. Jesus seems to make some amount of provision for this idea of weighty and lesser and greater things as well. How can I say that? Well, here's a couple of texts where Jesus does this. Look at Matthew 5, 18 and 19. In the Sermon on the Mount... Now, note what he says and what he doesn't say here. I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, obviously, Jesus is not in any way undercutting the law. He says, none of this is going to be taken away until all is accomplished or fulfilled, right? But then the next statement, he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. Well, the distinction to make a least commandment versus a greater commandment is all embroiled in that discussion. And obviously, even in this case, he has no problem answering when the man says, what's the greatest commandment? (laughs) He has no problem giving what the greatest commandment is. Again, another place. Matthew 23, 23, just a little bit further on. We'll get to these soon. In the midst of him pronouncing woes on the religious leaders, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. You see this? 
what Jesus is picking up on is something that they would be discussing all the time. They were always discussing, what's the more weighty of these things? And Jesus just says, you guys are great at minutia, and, and meanwhile, neglecting the big stuff, right? Straining out the gnat. Yeah, you can say, and swallowing the camel, very good. Yeah, they're engaged in that sort of behavior. The question here before Jesus is a test. Why? Because the Pharisees believe that it's sure to put Jesus out of favor with someone. You answer one com- with one command over another command, then certainly someone somewhere is going to object to the command that you picked. And it's going to embroil him in some sort of controversy. That's what they're after here. They want to stigmatize Jesus, at least with some section of the population. So they've traveled into the realm of what they're calling here a relative value. You know, what is one thing compared to another? They're all important, but one's, which one's more important? Let me ask you this. How many conflicts have you gotten into with spouses, friends, children, whoever else, co-workers, over matters of not ultimate, like, you know, what are the things we're actually after, main goals, but relative importance? As far as, is this one more important than that one? Like, we both agree that the laundry should be done and the dishes should be done and the grass should be cut. But which one takes priority, right? Which one is more important? Certainly, these are the sorts of questions that can embroil us in all kinds of discussion and dialogue and debate and controversy. And that's what was going on in the religious establishment during Jesus' day. So they're sure, they feel for sure this is a great question because it's going to put Jesus in some camp. And then we can stigmatize him in that camp and then we've got a nice little controversy rolling. Jesus, though, provides a very straightforward answer. It's straight and to the point. It's quite immediate. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is uh, the Lord God is one Lord. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. He speaks words here which every Jew would be so familiar with. He speaks here what's referred to as the Shema. It's referred to as the Shema because of the very first word there in Hebrew, hear. Hear, word Shema. So, Hebrews were familiar with the Shema because they recited it at, at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day. This is something they were very, very familiar with. Not only that, but they often put this very text, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, literally on their foreheads by putting on little scrolls and into a phylactery, a box that was then tied to their foreheads. They literally had it on their head, right, right there. They also had these little uh, boxes that were built into their doorposts called mezuzahs, and inside of there they would usually include, and among the things they included was certainly the Shema. So this passage would be more well known than John 3.16 is to us today. Okay, that's what, Jesus responds with something that was so familiar. I mean, he said it all the time. Meanwhile, he shows just how ignorant they are of the truth those words contained. In their efforts to literally put a box on their head, they had failed for those words to travel from their heads to their hearts. Jesus says, Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Why does he start with this? Why doesn't he just say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, my soul, and strength? We see that happening in Matthew. Why does it include this in Mark? I think it's because there's a recognition here that the command to love God with everything is because of the uniqueness of God. 
God is utterly unique. And as a result, He receives love with everything that we have. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is right at the heart of the book of Deuteronomy. You guys know what the book of Deuteronomy, what occasioned the book of Deuteronomy? The entire book is a sermon. It's a sermon given by Moses to Israel before they go into the promised land. If you've ever read through the first five books of the Bible and done it in a fairly rapid fashion where you can kind of see big connections, you know, if you read small sections, you get some really nice little nuggets, but sometimes you miss like the bigger picture. But if you read through it, like read through Deuteronomy in a sitting, or if you read through all of the Pentateuch, the first five books, um, you know, close, close by in time, you'll note that there's a lot of repetition in Deuteronomy. Like, why is he repeating all these things? Well, remember, what Moses is doing is he's preparing the next generation to now take these things into the promised land. He wants to remind them about God's past deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, of their traveling through the Red Sea, of then their rebellion against God and the consequences that fell, and the 40 years of wildering, oh, wildering, wandering in the wilderness as a result. He wants them to remember these things, to hold them dear to their hearts. And, and in this text, it, it, when we get to up to Deuteronomy 6, prior to Deuteronomy 6, like back in chapter 4, we see the uniqueness of God. Moses wants to make sure that the people understand just how different the one and only true God is from all the other fake, false, fake gods that are littered about the countryside. In contrast to all those false gods, the one true God is near his people and he listens to them, Deuteronomy 4.7. This God speaks to us about himself and tells us how to live, Deuteronomy 4.8. This God acts in miraculous ways, Deuteronomy 4.34 and 35 and the rest of Deuteronomy. He's a God who listens. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who acts. And so having set the stage, hear, O Israel, this is who the Lord is. This is what is demanded. That you love Him with everything. Your whole heart. From your whole soul. From your whole mind. From your whole strength. With everything you are. You can't love God in a half way. How preposterous would it be for a groom to tell his bride on their wedding day, I will commit to love you half-heartedly when I feel like it, when it's convenient, as long as it doesn't cost me anything, and as long as I have a clause to get out of this marriage whenever I need it. How well would that marriage ceremony go? You see, in traditional wedding vows, the bride and groom promise to love, honor, and respect one another in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, forsaking all others, keeping themselves only for each other for so long as they both shall live. Note that love is constant, it's faithful, it's exclusive, it's wholehearted, it's regardless of circumstance. The command to love God is with everything we are. There's been lots of attempts to describe these various aspects. Sometimes, you know, big theologies have been broken apart by, you know, what is man? You know, how many parts of man are there? And so that discussion continues and they can be helpful as far as they go. But I would just say this. Here in this text, you know, some will say, like, you know, the heart refers to the person's core and his primary loyalty. And the mind is obviously a person's thinking. And the soul is 
may the person's emotions and feelings and his might being the person's working, his acting, his striving. Those are all fine definitions, are all okay. But I think no matter what you do here, because then you also have a discussion of why in the other text there's only three things, and here you have four things mentioned. You know, how many parts of us are there? Ultimately, what's trying to be said here is you love God with everything. Those are all terms. They're just, they're kind of, there's a lot of overlap between terms, too. You know, sometimes when you talk about loving God with the heart, it, we, try to, we try to get at that. We, we go, well, is that with, does that mean with my thinking or is that with my emotions? Is that... And so some of these terms overlap with one another. The purpose is just to kind of lay up a bunch of terms such that at the end you get the point, loving with everything. Loving God involves the total devotion of all of our abilities, all of our talents, all of our desires. God is calling us to embrace Him with our deepest convictions, with our complete loyalty, to dedicate our present and future plans to Him, to follow Him with determination, that no matter what comes, I will follow you. That's what's being spoken to here. You see, this love starts with God. But it includes our neighbors. Jesus adds, the second is like it. Now, they just ask for the greatest. And Jesus is giving bonus here, right? He's giving some additional instruction. The second is like it, he says. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There's a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to the reason why God gives. I am the Lord. <laughs> why do I love my neighbor as myself? Because he is the Lord. And he's commanded me to do so. Now, this is another very well-known, very familiar Old Testament text. But the explicit connection of these two very familiar Old Testament texts had no Jewish precedent. We never see these two being brought together in the way that Jesus so elegantly does so. He summarizes all the law and prophets, he goes on to say, in these two statements. We rightly distinguish between these two commands, just as Jesus did. The first is primary and the prerequisite. You must love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. However, anyone who keeps the first commandment to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength keeps the second to love their neighbor as their self. You see, we can distinguish the two commands, but we can't separate the two commands. Get it? Why does Jesus add the second thing here? I think it's purposeful because sometimes the reality of our love for God is nowhere better seen than our love for others. Jesus connects these together so that way the one who goes, oh yeah, I love God, and meanwhile is hateful towards others, that confession is called into question. Jesus says the second is like it. The second follows after it. It's derivative of this first one. If you love God with all your heart, my soul, and strength, then you will love others as yourself. It's similar here to faith and repentance. We can distinguish faith and repentance. It's about repentance, you know, a turning away from sin, an admission regarding what is sin, and that I'm a sinner, and that I need forgiveness. And then I can also distinguish from that faith, belief in Jesus, trusting in Him, trusting in His death for my sins, trusting in His righteousness to cover me. So I can, I can distinguish those two, but in salvation, they're inseparable. You can't have repentance, true repentance, without true faith. And you can't have true faith without true repentance. They're inseparable. They're tied together. We can distinguish between them to consider them, but we ultimately can't separate them from one another. Similarly here. 
The command to love God with everything is intimately acquainted with the command to love others as ourselves. And while we can distinguish the two, and one is previous to the other, love for God first, love for others second, one who loves God will love others. Those who truly love God have experienced God's love and love as He does. You love what God loves and you hate what God hates. And you love who God loves. You love those made in God's image. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Let that sink in. If someone says he hates or he loves God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is not the first time that we've come across Leviticus 19.18 in Matthew, though. Jesus mentioned it back in Matthew 5. He also mentions it over in Luke 10 when there's a, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan arises out of a discussion of this. It's called the love his neighbor. And the question comes, who then is my neighbor, Jesus? And trying to justify himself, he wants to make sure that he's, he's covered. <laughs> Have I loved my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus. And we see from the parable of the Good Samaritan that your neighbor is anyone near you. In other words, anyone that you have the opportunity of showing love to. So certainly this extends to anyone that we come in contact with. Because remember, the hero of that tale is the Samaritan, who in that day was considered an enemy of the Jews. Jesus makes the one who's the enemy into a hero. It's hard to sometimes grasp the, the weightiness of that in the parable unless we do something like this, you know, there's a... Somebody who's broken down on the side of the road and they're bleeding to death. And here comes Pastor Jess and he travels on the other side of the road because he doesn't want to get blood on his clothes. And then behind me comes the Taliban guy, you know, <laughs> and he stops and bandages him and takes him to the, to the uh, you know, the hotel, the hospital, yeah, wherever, and helps him out, right? In those moments, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, wow, you know, and that, that's really what Jesus is doing in that parable. The point is, is that a neighbor is anyone who is, near to us. But can I let that, that word neighbor kind of sink in? I just want to can I ask a little practical application for us to consider. What have you done lately for neighbors living near you? Your next door neighbors, either side of your house, across the street, maybe if you're in an apartment complex, either side of where you live. What have you done to reach out to them? We're called to love our neighbor, right? And so sometimes what we can do is we can go, well, that's not literal. I mean, that's like anybody I come in contact with. And then we do it with no one. Well, the neighbor is also a neighbor, right? Your next door neighbor is a neighbor. He's someone near you, right? What have you done for them lately? It's amazing how just even the simplest you know, gesture of love and care can make a huge impact. This past week, uh, while we were out of town for the uh, week or so, our next door neighbor had found that our garbage had been dumped over by raccoons. Anyone else have raccoon issues? Anyway, and uh, they had cleaned it all up for us and even picked up some stuff. And so... Leah had then gone by uh, this last week and brought him a, a loaf of bread that she had baked. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have with a neighbor over that loaf of bread. I mean, they, they talked about it like eight times, I think. You know, every time I came up, they're like, hey, I don't know if we told you, but thank you for the bread. I, I didn't even have anything to do with it with my wife, you know. But 
But it's one of those things where you never know how the simplest, smallest gesture can make an impact on someone's life. What are you doing to show that kind of love, even to your next door neighbors? Note that this command takes for granted that we love ourselves. (laughs) And love your neighbor as yourself. We're all concerned with ourselves. Ephesians 5 says it. Husbands, love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. You see, it's our sinful preoccupation with self that's so enslaving. The problem is that our concern for selfish interests take precedence over concern for the interests of others. We don't have a problem with loving ourselves. For some reason, there's been a huge, I mean, it's not as big today, but it, it was really big for a while there. It was all like, you know, self-esteem is the biggest thing. and It was going through every church, and we just all got to think better of ourselves. I don't need any help thinking better of myself. I think about myself too much. Matter of fact, the person who is depressed, often the biggest problem for them is that they're thinking about themselves too much. They're thinking about their pitiful situation too much. They need to think about other people and their situations. And it's amazing how when you consider the cares of others, how yours seem to be ministered to by the Lord. Our problem is not a lack of self-esteem, but it's a problem with self-glorification. We think too highly of ourselves. And instead of fussing over our needs and our discomforts, we're to fuss over the needs of others. When's the last time you fussed over the need of someone else? Where you went to the wall for somebody else? to take care of some pain that they have or to lessen some agony or to look to bless them in some way. When I was up at the funeral for my grandmother, my grandfather left an um, indelible impression on my mind. If, if he hadn't already been meaningful in my life by what he did on the day of the funeral, he will always be remembered I can remember walking up, there was two other pastors and myself. I had closing remarks. I wasn't the main officiant of the, of the funeral. I was just the closing remarks and benediction. The main officiating pastor was in front of me. We walked up down the aisle and my grandfather's sitting in a chair at the front. And he stops at my grandfather and he bends down to offer his condolences to my grandfather. And I'm standing right behind him so I hear what my grandfather says. And he looks up at him and he says, how is your daughter doing? Has she gotten out of the hospital yet? If I thought I was going to make it through that funeral without crying, it was already over right there. I mean, I went sat down and I'm just trying to keep it together. You see, if there was ever a time when my grandfather should think about himself. Think about yourself, Grandpa. You just lost your your, your wife of 67 years. But in that moment, he's thinking about the officiating pastor's daughter in the hospital. I have to share this too. He's sent a poem. He's a poet. He wrote this. My grandmother was a very particular scheduler. She kept a tight ship. And you'll hear that in this. It's entitled Schedule. Walked in the pool at six today. Showered and dressed by seven. A bite to eat now just for one. My orchestrator's gone to heaven. Impossible to have a schedule. Because I have no you. I gather up a simple plan. It's the best that I can do. I looked into the bedroom. 
checked your recliner chair, both baths, even the front porch, but you weren't there. Life always was so simple. Mary's schedule met our needs. Now the lack I'm feeling, each part of life it impedes. I've lost my orchestrator, my schedule's blown apart, especially the deepest feelings that are held within my heart. I guess we'll always be that way each long, fragmented day. Thank God for friends and family that share their love my way. So I'll work at my computer, make more cards today, for other folks are hurting, and it will brighten up their day. What better way to use time? It's what I love to do. My orchestrators ask me till Jesus calls me too. You see, this is the way that we're called to live. In the midst of even our suffering and pain, to show love and care and concern for others. For isn't this indeed what Jesus has done on our behalf? You see, the believer who loves God won't take his name in vain. He won't worship idols, nor will he do wrong to a neighbor. The one who loves God encompasses everything else. The summary of all of the laws contained in these statements. If you love God, you will love others. If you love your wife, you'll lay down your life for her. If you love your husband, you'll submit to his leadership. If you love your parents, you'll honor them. If you love your neighbors, you'll seek their good. You'll speak truth to them. You'll share the gospel with them. You'll rejoice with them. You'll weep with them. You see, love summarizes all the law in a beautiful way. This is, this is picked up in so many New Testament texts. I have to at least pick up one. Romans 13. Paul says this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He says this is the one debt you ought to have with everyone. You're indebted to everyone with one thing, to love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Sounds just like what Jesus said, right? Whoever loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it's summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. See, love summarizes all of this. Let's quickly talk about the expression of love. How does love get expressed? Well, first of all, it must flow from him who is love. It must flow from him who is love. The command is to love God with everything that you have to the, to the fullest measure possible. The love that's called for is intelligent love, it's feeling love, it's willing love, it's intentional love, it's determined love, it's impassioned love. It's a love that's ready to act, a ready, a ready to serve love. It's certainly not empty words or empty ritual. You see, what God is calling people to is not bare belief in the fact that He exists. That's not saving faith. Saving faith, saving belief is not believing that He exists. James 2.19 says even the demons believe that and they shudder. They shudder at the thought. They know that God exists. They know that Jesus rose from the dead. They shudder at the thought of these things. It's not enough to admit, to believe in an academic fashion, in a factual fashion, that Jesus is God. That Jesus died and rose again. What God calls us to is to love Him with everything. And this love is not natural to us in our fallen state. We need this love to be given to us. And in order to, in order to give this sort of love, you have to first experience this sort of love. 
And when you know your love like this, it changes everything. Robert Stein says, like all such commands, the command to love is not given as a means for us to enter into relationship with God, but rather as the stipulation resulting from such a covenantal relationship. In other words, in the words of 1 John, we love God because He first loved us. You see, if you do good as a work, then it will always feel as a burden. You'll behave out of fear that you might get something if you don't do it. But if we love God, then we'll obey from a transformed seat of affections. Good is not work. It's joy. It's, bur- it's not burdensome. This is like 1 John 5. Right? The commandments of God are not burdensome to those who love God, who have experienced His love. When we're saved, what happens is we're given new hearts. And we're given new desires and new attitudes. And these spring up from our hearts. And they cause us to love God with everything we are and everything we have. And it pours out into the life, our life into others. Because, as Ezekiel 11 says, it, God's put a new spirit within us. He's removed our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. God gives a new heart. Through which He gives us a capacity to love as He loves You see, this is best seen, though, in Christ. It's best seen in Christ. All of our expressions of love are tainted by sin. Our love can be earthly and fleshly, selfishly motivated. We love to get. God loves to give. This is what's distinctive about God's love. It's all about giving. The only way this is possible is by having experienced the love of Jesus. This is an extended quote, but it's really fantastic. Frederick Buchner says this, The love of equals is a human thing, of a friend for a friend or a brother for a brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love of the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, the love for the poor, the love for the sick, love for failures and the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed when we fail. To rejoice without envy. To love the love of the poor for the rich. The world is bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you. Love for the one who mocks you and threatens you and inflicts pain upon you. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. And it transforms the world. You see, God loved the world in such a way that it brought him to give his very best. He gave his only son. Insert John 3.16. Now, in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for his enemies. He laid down his life for those who hated him. God sent his son. For those who hated Him. 
Dads, how many of you would be willing to offer up a son or a daughter for those who hate you? And this is, in fact, what, Jesus, what God has done for us sinners. You see, the law finds its great purpose in fleshing out the love of God. What Jesus is saying is that all the commandments just act as a commentary on this main thought that we're to love God with everything. If you love God with everything, then certainly you won't worship false gods and idols and you won't use the Lord's name in vain. Understand, if you love God with everything, that's going to be the natural consequence. And if we love people as ourselves, then we won't commit adultery, we won't murder, we won't steal, we won't be covetous. So the law is just fleshing out the love of God. And meanwhile, God loves us so much that having given us the law, and through it we've seen just how far we've fallen short of that standard, He then came in the flesh to save us from the curse of the law. And it's judgment. Jesus' love changes everything. The scribe says to Jesus on this occasion, Good teacher, you've spoken truly. He, he is one and there is no other than He. To love Him with the whole heart and the whole understanding, the whole strength. And to love neighbors oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. I love this response from the scribe. It's like... Jesus' discussion here of love has transformed this man's heart, at least in some fashion, such that he exclaims out of the moment of that, while he's still in the presence of all of the other naysayers, right? He's saying, what you just said is beautiful. He says, it's elegant. He's overcome by it. And in light of love, this crotchety lawyer is like, this legalism is cold and heartless. He sees Jesus' answer is not merely clever. He says it's good. It's wholesome. He finds it satisfying. He's finding a craving here that he hasn't felt before. It's fascinating that a scribe, a lawyer, a, a Pharisee, someone who's so familiar with the outward forms of worship in Jerusalem, and they're in the temple court, could so boldly declare on this occasion that what you're talking about is more important than all of this? How could someone whose whole life was engaged in knowing every little jot and tittle of the laws be able to expound them and keep people to them and make sure that the sacrifices were handled? How could such an individual then exclaim like this? Francis, the sweeping demotion of the whole system of temple sacrifice on the part of a scribe much of whose professional concern focused around sacrificial regulations, is remarkable. This is like a person who spent their whole life in a job, and upon experiencing the love of Jesus, just goes, I'm done with that job. <laughs> like He's almost denouncing the entire what he's been doing. What he does is he begins to connect this truth with, with other passages of Scripture in his mind. You think of 1 Samuel 15, where we see that, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Hosea 6.6, 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. So the scribe is, I, I wonder if his familiarity with the scripture, as Jesus makes the statement, if he's now connecting the dots. And if that's the case, if that's really what's going on here, I think we can be encouraged to what, how important rich Bible study is. Because as we learn a new truth, when that truth comes into our minds, it then connects with everything else we know. 
other things, other significances start roaring to the surface. I remember I had one of those big experiences when it came to the doctrines of grace some years ago um, before I agreed with them as I do now. And all of a sudden, when that all clicked, and then like all these other texts all of a sudden clicked together. And that's and I think it's going out to describe. He's like, oh wow. Yeah, that's how this fits together. It also is an interesting statement because it seems to set the stage for coming events. You see, the Old Testament sacrifices would find their fulfillment in Jesus and they would pass away from the scene. But what would remain? The command to love. Third and finally, the beauty of love. What does the beauty of love do? Well, at least two things. First of all, it leaves us speechless. Even Jesus' opponents on this occasion are left without words. We're told they no longer dared question him. Jesus has silenced his critics. All their questions have been put to rest. They've realized that their traps have backfired, and they wish no further humiliation. They rest their case. There's no winning an argument with Jesus. Their hatred was quite literally repulsed by love. Jesus met their hatred with love, and they're left speechless. He emerges here the clear victor after all of these questions are asked. And next week, we're going to see how Jesus presses his advantage by asking them a question. We'll see that next time together. That these critics are silenced by love. But I would also argue that there are moments in us, those who have experienced God's love, where it almost seems that silence best becomes us. Have you ever had a moment like that? Or like you're just you're left without words, standing in the Lord's presence, and some levels wanting to shout for joy at the top of your lungs for what He has done, and then on another level simultaneously feeling that silence is the most fitting thing to do, and the shock and awe of the grandeur and majesty of the love of God, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son and make a wretch his treasure. The beauty of love sometimes leads us to speechlessness. It also draws us near. And we see that happening with this lawyer. In this exchange, this questioner becomes a potential recruit. It appears that this man is being drawn to Jesus in some form or fashion. Rather than being an occasion to dissuade others from following Jesus, we find the questioner... Liking what Jesus has said. Acknowledging the beauty of Jesus' words. He seems to have a lot of good sense about him. It's exceptional. His companions didn't share his perspective. The lawyer pictures what might have been with the religious leaders had they come to Christ with openness in their hearts, listening to his words. And then Jesus, at the end of this conversation, makes it very plain and clear that he's the one in authority. Because he's the one that pronounces this statement upon the man. He says, you have come near to the kingdom of God. You are not far, verse 34, Mark 12, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He makes a statement regarding this man's nearness to God's kingdom. How can he say this? How can Jesus say this? Well, quite simply, because Jesus is the kingdom. It's by being found in Jesus that you're in the kingdom. 
If you're not in Christ, then you're not in the kingdom. The account ends without us telling, without telling us precisely what happens with the scribe. And I wonder if that's purposeful. To make us question regarding our own selves. Are we in God's kingdom? Am I one who loves God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and my neighbor as myself? Ryle says it well. May we never rest till we're inside the kingdom of God. Till we've truly repented, really believed, and have made, been made new creatures in Christ. If we rest satisfied with not being, with being not far from the kingdom, we shall find at last it will be shut out forevermore. He says, it's not good enough to be not far from the kingdom. You need to be in the kingdom. Don't stop being near the kingdom. Come into the kingdom. So let me conclude with a few questions. Does any of this discussion cause you to be concerned regarding your relationship with God? Do you feel in your own heart and soul, mind, strength, a lack of love for God, a lack of love for others. Well, I have good news for you. The response to that admission, if that's you today, is not to attempt to beat yourself up until you love like that, because it will never work. You can't beat yourself up enough to make yourself love like you're called to love. You can't do it. What you need to do is to experience God's love for you. You see, at the heart of our sin problem is a love problem. If the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, then the greatest sin is what? To fail to do that. It's to fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So really... It is our own lack of love, can I put it the other way, our hate for God that is our big problem. That's our problem. Our problem is our lack of love for God. But here's the good news. God doesn't love you and me like we do in our flesh. You see, Christ died for sin. Put another way, again, substitute what is sin, lack of love. Jesus died for man's lack of love for God. He died precisely because we don't love God as we must. And he offers forgiveness for that lack in us. He died taking the penalty for our lack of love for God. And not only that, but he provided for our present and future love for God. He's provided what we lack. He's made up for our mistake. He's made up for our rebellion, our sin, our hate. As MacArthur says, the great forgiver is also the great enabler. Because through Christ, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, Romans 5.5. When we feel our sins forgiven and ourselves declared right with God, loved by Him, adopted into His family, then and only then will we love Him. 1 John 4.19, we love Him because He first loved us. And that love, my friends, will trickle into everything and everyone else because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Please, by all means, don't come merely close to God's kingdom. Dive in. Fall on your knees before a holy God, admitting your lack of love for Him. Cry out to Jesus, the one who died for those who lack love, that He might reconcile you to God. 
and fill you up with His never-ending, never-failing, all-consuming love.